0: many of you may have studied moral philosophy uh, recently or a long time ago, and this will be by way of a reminder. Uh, Others of you may not have done this before, and uh, it's meant to be cast in in a very introductory uh, way. Uh, One of the longings of the philosopher is to be intelligible, and I'm going to make every effort to make what I have to say uh, easily intelligible without, of course, being condescending. Uh, we last time spent uh, some time talking about the nature of philosophy, its history. I want now to locate uh, ethics uh, within philosophy. Uh, we noted that the word comes from the Greeks, uh, love of wisdom. It wasn't a discipline nowadays in the modern university. Uh, if you go uh, to, the, say, the arts college uh, and wander along uh, through the corridors, you might come upon a door that says Department of Philosophy. And philosophy is just one of the things that goes on in that large building, in that large enterprise. Uh, This is uh, for philosophy to have fallen on somewhat evil days because originally philosophy was simply the name for knowledge, knowledge considered as ordered to wisdom. And it comprised a number of uh, sciences which, particularly with Aristotle, began to sort themselves out from one another. And Thomas Aquinas, in reading Aristotle, came up with what uh, seemed to him to be implicit, not just as explicit as he makes it, but implicit uh, in Aristotle as to what the proper way of learning the philosophical sciences would be. This is not the order of discovery, of course, but if you and I wanted to become philosophers, and we went to a philosopher, and he knew what he was up to, uh, he would uh, proceed, uh, Thomas uh, felt Aristotle was telling us, he would proceed in this way. First of all... Uh, We would be urged to study logic, we would be urged to study just what reasoning is, what successful reasoning is, what fallacious reasoning is, how arguments are uh, formulated and so forth. This as the instrument of philosophy. And once we had gotten a handle on the uh, instrument or the means of reasoning, we would turn, first of all, to uh, natural science, uh, to knowledge of the, of the physical world around us, which for the philosopher, until he knows otherwise, that is the, uh, the sum total of reality, is physical reality. One of the exciting things about Greek philosophy is to watch the way in which it dawns upon people that they cannot confine themselves to the physical world, that the physical world, in short, doesn't exhaust reality. But that's something that they come upon as a discovery, and they tend to provide arguments for it to show us that uh, physical reality isn't all there is. But it is where we start, And the second great effort in the study of philosophy, if we're being taught by someone who has already achieved it, would be natural science, the world around us. And this, of course, could occupy us for a very long time. Uh, If you looked at the works of Aristotle, you would find that most of them uh, are concerned with the natural world, particularly with the life world. After achieving knowledge of natural science, did I say that was second? Actually, second would be mathematics. After logic would come mathematics. And the idea here is that we could uh, learn this without a great deal of experience, uh, which of course is required increasingly if we're going to know much about the physical world. But after logic, mathematics is something that even children can learn, as Aristotle put it. And indeed, it seems to be the case that mathematical geniuses do their stuff at a very early age and spend the rest of their lives sort of uh, resting on their auras. But it's not unusual for a very young person to come up with a mathematical discovery of great uh, moment. It doesn't require uh, long experience. It doesn't require travel, research grants, and all that sort of thing. It's much more immediate. But as we would go on then to the study, of natural philosophy here, of course, increasingly we would need uh, experience, just as Aristotle sought uh, specimens from around uh, the Greek world to base his uh, book on the parts of animals and the generation of animals and so forth. So as we know, a great deal of empirical research is required to know just what the facts of the matter are uh, before we give some kind of account or explanation uh, of them. After this, in the order of learning, logic, mathematics, natural science, Thomas suggests would come moral philosophy. And this would come just before the culminating uh, effort of uh, philosophy, which as the title, the term suggests would be wisdom. Well, what is wisdom? For the Greeks, it was such knowledge as we can attain of God, of the divine. That is the ultimate point and purpose of the intellectual life, to acquire knowledge of the divine, to move from the things of this world to the divine as the cause of the things of this world, uh, and to contemplate God. This is what philosophy was for the Greek. It's one of the main reasons why uh, the Christian uh, fathers saw in it something that was a kind of prelude uh, to uh, the gospel. Uh, They spoke of pagan philosophy as a preparatio evangelica, as a preparation for the gospel. St. Paul is interesting to look at from the point of view of the relationship between faith and philosophy. In Colossians, he tells us to watch out lest someone leads us astray through philosophy. Videte ne quispos de cipiat per philosophiam, he said. And yet in Acts, when he goes to Athens and he wants to convey the good news, through these pagan, sophisticated Athenians. Remember, he finds an altar to the unknown God, and Paul says, I'm gonna talk to you about this God, the unknown God, and goes on from there. So we get kind of conflicting signals, one might say, in St. Paul as to whether philosophy is a danger or whether it is something that uh, can be a means uh, and stepping stone to the uh, Gospel. At any rate, this ideal of philosophy, as I say, has persisted. The philosopher is someone who is seeking wisdom, And wisdom, ultimately, uh, a speculative or a theoretical wisdom to know the truth about the way things are, and ultimately to know the ultimate source of all other truths and reality, namely God. There is another uh, way in which we talk about wisdom, probably more commonly, and that is the wise person is the one who is capable of good judgments, as to what we ought to do here and now. At all uh, phases of our life, when we're confronted with some uh, practical problem, some moral problem, we go to uh, someone that we consider to be wiser than ourselves and ask their advice as to what it is that we ought to do. So wisdom has this, for us, primary meaning, I suppose, of moral wisdom or practical wisdom. But uh, within the context of classical philosophy, MORAL WISDOM WAS CONSIDERED TO PREPARE US FOR uh, THE ULTIMATE MOVE IN PHILOSOPHY, WHICH WAS TO uh, TURN TO KNOWLEDGE OF GOD HIMSELF, TO CONTEMPLATION OF GOD HIMSELF. AND JUST AS I MENTIONED LAST TIME, uh, Plato tended to see a relationship between moral virtue and the turn towards the ideas, these transcendent ideals that he thought explained the existence of particular uh, things around us. And so the acquisition of moral virtue was a kind of suppression of sense knowledge uh, so that the soul would be released to return to these ideal entities. Uh, Aristotle doesn't accept that view of uh, human beings or of the relationship, at least as described in that way. Uh, But for Aristotle, as for any of the Greeks, moral virtue, moral excellence of turning away from moral evil would be a presupposition for being able to go on to the very term of philosophy, wisdom in the sense of contemplation of the divine. Uh, I mentioned uh, also last time that many of the Platonic dialogues, particularly those in which Plato stars, deal with moral questions. And this is by anyone's uh, standards, uh, whether we uh, start off the way I have here, given this uh, kind of sequence of courses uh, or steps that one might take towards the acquisition of wisdom or not, any philosopher would consider moral questions to be part and parcel of what uh, he is up to. Uh, Immanuel Kant, for example, said that we could sum up philosophy in a number of questions. What can I know? What should I do? And what can I hope for? And what should I do, of course, would be uh, the moral question. uh, And to some extent as well, what should I hope for? And Kant, like all philosophers, assumes that he ought to have something to say about that. Uh, that he ought to be able to cast some light on this persistent question of human life. What does it all mean? What is the good for human being? What should we be aiming at? What are the criteria? Uh, for distinguishing uh, between the good course of action and the bad course of action. These are what we expect some help from the philosophers, from Plato certainly. In Aristotle we have, as I mentioned uh, last time, the Nicomachean ethics, the ethics that was uh, dedicated to Nicomachus, Uh, We also have in the writings of Aristotle the Eudemian Ethics, uh, which uh, overlaps in large part the Nicomachean Ethics, and another book of uh, somewhat uh, less uh, sure uh, authenticity, the Magna Moralia. If we wanted just to uh, consult Plato and Aristotle, uh, we would find a lot of help in uh, determining answers to moral questions, and even more importantly, how it is you go about arriving at answers to moral questions. Now, one of the uh, assumptions of what I've said already uh, in contrasting moral wisdom with theoretical wisdom is that there is this distinction between two uses of our mind, a theoretical use uh, and a practical use. Moral philosophy uh, will fall on the side of practical thinking when I wanted to give you a kind of uh, sketch or overview of classical philosophy rather than mention the stepwise procedure whereby we are told we should learn philosophy, logic, mathematics, natural science, uh, moral philosophy, and then uh, wisdom or metaphysics or theology, uh, as the Greeks would uh, call it, I might have said, well, in the classical view, philosophy is uh, divided into two major parts. Uh, the theoretical sciences and the practical sciences. Then logic would be a kind of outrider. It again would function as the uh, instrument uh, for these more substantive sciences. And as we looked at the theoretical order, uh, the sciences our attention would be drawn to would be natural science again, and then mathematics, and then theology, that is such knowledge as human beings can attain by their own powers of the divine. And when we turn to the practical order, uh, we would find ethics and economics and politics. Now, that uh, this assumption is one that continues long after the great uh, sea change that I indicated takes place uh, with Descartes can be illustrated again by alluding to Immanuel Kant, whose three great critiques... Uh, one, the critique of pure reason, then the critique of practical reason, uh, and then uh, the third critique uh, having to do with the aesthetic indicates that he separates out or divides up uh, the philosophical effort into uh, various uh, regions and that uh, what we see uh, certainly echoed uh, in the difference between the first two critiques uh, is the difference between theoretical or the classical notion of theoretical as opposed to practical reasoning. Uh, How can we characterize this just in a sort of ordinary way? Uh, If we were studying uh, sulfur and trying to arrive at the properties of sulfur and the sort of behavior that it engages in, that would be one of its properties, of course, uh, this would be a kind of knowledge that we might seek simply for its own sake. Say we're taking chemistry and uh, this the... uh, subject under consideration, we're just very concerned about getting it right about sulfur. and We want to know about its properties. And if someone said, what do you want to know that for? One sufficient answer would simply be, I want to know it. I simply want to know it. Uh, Just as certainly in astronomy, which is both the oldest and the youngest of sciences, uh, it's rather difficult to know what you're going to do with it. uh, If there's any of the sciences, which from the very beginning, as I say, induced in uh, pursuers of knowledge the sense of being a kind of spectator uh, of reality, uh, a reality over which one had no control by comparison with which one was dwarfed, uh, it is uh, certainly astronomy. So we don't ask the astronomer, what are you going to do with it? Uh, Well, we're likely to ask him that and maybe he would respond and tell us that space travel will be made more efficient and safe uh, if we know more about the cosmos. But of course he would know that there are all kinds of things, the most interesting things that go on in astronomy have very little prospect of being of practical use or advantage. We simply want to know what the universe in which we uh, exist uh, is like, what it's like, what the truth about it is. It's a drive in us as human beings. Aristotle begins one of his works uh, with the famous generalization, all men by nature desire to know. And he takes that to be exemplified in such disciplines or inquiries, uh, say, as astronomy. We don't ask, what good is it? The good is in having that knowledge and knowing it. Well, that's in studied contrast, of course, to what you would expect if you subscribe to popular mechanics uh, and uh, you're particularly devoted to issues uh, that tell you how you can make things in the privacy of your own basement and your own workbench. And maybe even you could make your own kayak uh, down in the basement during the winter months uh, and uh, have it uh, for your amusement and uh, pleasure and instruction uh, during uh, the more clement uh, weather of summer. As you read this kind of article in such a magazine, How to Build a Boat in Your Basement, it's telling you what steps to take, what materials you ought to go out and buy, how you ought to put them, together and in what sequence uh, and the like, such that the result will be a floatable craft in which you can be riding the white rapids of the Colorado River next summer. So the kind of knowledge that's conveyed uh, in that kind of an article is aimed at something other than knowing it. Just understanding the article is a presupposition, of course, but it's a presupposition to doing something, to making the boat. So this kind of knowledge, unlike, let's say, astronomy or uh, mathematics uh, and the like, has an end beyond knowledge itself. So we could give that as a sort of working definition of uh, the theoretical use of our mind uh, as opposed to the practical use of our mind, that in using our mind theoretically, the aim is the perfection of thinking itself that is, the acquisition of truth about the objects of thought. Whereas in the practical use of our mind, uh, we are seeking knowledge not as a terminal goal, but in order to engage in activities other than thinking, uh, such as making. So that one of the great illustrations of practical knowledge, one of the great instances of it, is art. Uh, In the very commodious and initially modest sense, that art, techne, has uh, for the Greeks. It's any reforming of natural material for some purpose of our own, which is not a purpose of nature's as such. So that if we take the hides of animals and we cure and tan them, and then fashion them uh, into coverings for our feet, this, of course, would be an instance of a work of art uh, in this, uh, as I say, very commodious sense so that a natural material will have been put to a use and purpose that we impose upon uh, that material. So this is knowledge. You have to know something about uh, leather and the like. This is pre-plastic that I'm talking about in order to know how to make a pair of shoes. Or maybe you're a Dutch and you want to make them out of wood. But uh, if someone suggested that you made shoes out of uh, spider webs uh, or out of water, you'd wonder uh, whether they were pulling your leg or uh, telling a joke. Uh, I mean, there are certain things you have to know about the natural materials uh, in order to see them as amenable. Uh, to the goals that uh, we as artisans impose uh, upon them. So this would be, I suppose, the most obvious uh, example, other than morals itself, of a practical use of our mind. There are people, and I was one of them when I was younger, who like to read popular mechanics just for the fun of it. And I would read how to build a uh, 20-foot sailboat in your six-foot-long basement and so forth and get a great deal of pleasure out of it without having any intention, believe me whatsoever, of actually using that knowledge. Uh, There are people, I suppose, who like to read cookbooks. Huh? Uh, uh, simply as a pleasure, as a matter of knowledge, without intending uh, to follow the recipe and actually produce uh, the goodie that is being uh, described in the cookbook. We'd find that a kind of odd way of reading uh, popular mechanics or a cookbook uh, simply as a drive to know about uh, what's in them and the like. If the aim of the knowledge is to show us how to do something or to make something, presumably the full benefit uh, from reading such a thing is to go beyond the reading and to enact or to make the thing, the making of which is being described forth. Now, morals. As uh, you can see, uh, this is what I'm leading up to. Moral philosophy is a species of practical thinking. In ethics or moral philosophy, what we're doing is putting our mind to the question, what should I do? And this is a question which we might say is implicit in any action uh, that we perform, Uh, and indeed, to connect with the theme of our lecture last time, uh, it is uh, to hook up to, when we're doing moral philosophy, we are presupposing that we and those with whom we are discussing the matter have already engaged in moral action, that we have a fund of experience our own personal experience of observation of others, what we've been told, uh, the way that we've been raised, and so forth, a whole inventory of material about uh, human action, which we are going to reflect on and see if we can't lift that to a greater level of clarity. But notice that the assumption is we begin with action, we don't produce actions for the first time as a result of moral philosophy. I'll come back to that. Moral philosophy, in the way in which we're talking about it and are going to develop it, presupposes that we're already moral agents. We know what it's like to perform moral action, but now we want to, in a more leisurely way, reflect on that in the expectation that this kind of reflection will be useful for future action. So there is a kind of arc that is described here. Actions, our own moral actions and behavior is presupposed. Moral philosophy is a reflection on that with an eye towards clarification uh, that we might not have in that presupposed experience and that these clarifications that are arrived at in moral philosophy are not sought for their own sake not simply to know them, but in order to be able to act more surely uh, and responsibly in the future. So this is what is meant by calling it um, a practical philosophy, and it also indicates how moral philosophy, as pursued within the tradition that I'm moving, makes the assumption you and I, long before we ever heard the phrase moral philosophy, were engaged as moral agents and had a great fund of knowledge, good and bad, about uh, human action. Uh, we have the empirical wherewithal, we might say, to reflect on these matters, but we're not doing it simply to get clear about them terminally or to have an elegant theory of human action. When we engage in moral philosophy, we're doing it as a practical enterprise, and that again means that we're seeking knowledge which is relevant to and useful for directing future singular actions. When we talk about moral philosophy, we are engaged in a species of practical knowing. And practical knowing is distinguished from theoretical in this, that unlike theoretical knowledge, practical knowledge is not terminal, is not sought just for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of doing the sort of thing that we are endeavoring to get knowledge of. And the two great instances of it classically would be art, our efforts to rearrange or reform or reshape the natural materials around us, first of all for quite utilitarian purposes or useful purposes, and then ultimately for purposes simply of achieving a beauty that is not just given by nature itself. So art would be, in all of its many meanings, kind of a continuum of meanings, of analogous meanings, would be an instance of practical knowledge. If you took a course in how to write mystery stories, for example, presumably you would be following that course in order to write mystery stories. If you took up watercolors, you don't just want to read books about how to paint with watercolors, you want to do it. And that kind of teaching tends to be very close to coaching so that somebody is directing our hand, showing us how to slop through the water and so forth to get it on the uh, paper and to achieve the effects that we want. That's what we want to do. We don't just want to read books about watercoloring. So it is with moral philosophy. The great classics of moral philosophy from the very beginnings of the history of philosophy are the kinds of books that, uh, at least in a certain mood, we want to curl up with and read. But what we're reading about are human actions, actions that we might perform. And uh, these works are reflections on those actions such that we, when we act in the future, will do so more gracefully, more purposefully, more successfully than we have in the past. So practical wisdom, on the one hand, and art would be two examples of practical thinking practical wisdom, ethical wisdom, the kind of wisdom that I suggested we would look for in someone when we sought their advice about some decision we were confronted with. Ethics is a lot like that. If we think of the relationship between our going to an older and wiser person, for advice as to some decision that we are going to make. That would be very personal. It might be very one-on-one. What moral philosophy, we might say, is is the kind of generalization from that. It's uh, generalizing from what this wise person knows, getting it into a more systematic form so that it can, not in a one-to-one way, but to whom it might concern, way be directive of the actions of the student or of the hearer. Now that raises a question that we will return to several times as to what we can really expect from the study of moral philosophy. One of the questions that arises very early on, is knowledge virtue? Is it the case that a certain course of study will enable us to become good? Can virtue be learned? That's the uh, next topic that I want to take up today. What I want now, though, to draw attention to is what we might call in terms of the kind of systematic arrangement of the parts of philosophy. We might say, well, this would be a subdivision of practical philosophy. And earlier I said, well, if we approached it that way, what we would have is ethics and economics and politics. What is the assumption of that kind of division of questions about what we ought to do. Presumably, the political question would be, what ought we to do as citizens, as members of a political community? Economics, in this sense of the term, from oikia, the Greek term for household, would mean, what should I do as a member of a family? And the ethical question, in the narrow sense, would be, what should I do, taken more or less singly and solitarily? This is the point I want to make in this lecture. We live at a time when it is very commonplace for us to be invited to think about ourselves as kind of individuals, autonomous individuals, and then society is looked upon as a kind of arrangement that we might choose to enter into. Contractarian theory is a great story or kind of heuristic device, as we might say, when it was first introduced, if we want to understand society, imagine that you had all of these individuals just there, and they decided to enter into a pact, into a contract, and this would be the origins of civil society. Unfortunately, that story, whatever its use was as a kind of interpretative advice, I think got too heavy a grip on the minds of us such that we begin to think of ourselves as principally and primarily individuals. And this affects, of course, what we think we're doing when we do moral philosophy. In moral philosophy, if we're engaged in practical thinking, we are asking questions about what ought I to do Presumably, when we seek advice from someone on a decision that we are going to make, we're confronting a kind of crossroads. We might do this, we might do that. Which would be the appropriate thing for us to do? When we seek advice, we're seeking guidance as to which of these courses of action, if either, we ought to embark upon. So that in moral philosophy, we are looking generally at questions as to what agents such as ourselves ought to do. And if we accepted what became a kind of modern assumption, that we are primarily individuals, this concern for what is good for us might seem to be simply and primarily a question of what is good for me as an individual. And any questions about a common good, whether domestic or political, would come after that and uh, would pose theoretical problems, as they do. As you know, when we approach things in that way, we talk about people entering into society and agreeing to live with one another. The term trade-off very quickly comes up. It's as if we're giving up something, and what are we going to get in return? So there's a kind of very careful and calculated bargaining that's going on on that particular model. What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it is is that we're not individuals in that sense. Consider a a phrase that you perhaps have heard before, another one of those ringing generalizations that we find in Aristotle. Man is by nature a political animal. That is, man is born into society. It's his nature. He doesn't choose it. That's the way it is with him. It's a factual thing. You and I would not be here today if we hadn't been born into a family where we were cared for for years by adult person, nurturing us, taking care of us, training us in the most elementary way. We wouldn't have survived. So to be the kind of being we are presupposes that we are members of a society. Sociologists used to, I don't know if they still do, used to study what are called feral children, kind of Romulus and Ramus type, children raised by the wolves or something like this, who had never had contact with other human beings. And you get some cases that at least veer in this direction. And of course, it's a very interesting a situation for a sociologist because here you have a contrast to human beings living in society. Here would be a human being who didn't, and of course the sociologists would tend to see this as a very defective instance of what a human being is. This human being would be thwarted simply by the fact that he was not raised in the natural setting for a human being. Now, what's the import of that? It's this. If we ask what is good for us? We can't mean first of all, or solely, what is good for me as an individual? The good for a human being is always primarily a common good, a shared good. Most of us see this most easily in the domestic community. As members of a family, as parents, as children, we become very quickly aware that there is a good that we share with other members of the family which is our good, of course, but it's not just our good. It's not a private good. It's not an individual good. It's a shared or common good. And that in a well-ordered family, that takes precedence over the merely private goods of this member of the family, that member of the family, and so on. And so it is, as we move on, all proportions guarded, to a political society. We will not flourish as human beings apart from a civil society the life of solitude, a kind of Thoreau existence. Thoreau was sneaking in the town every night, as we learned. But if we think of ourselves as repairing to Walden Pond and getting out of the frantic existence that other people lead and being all by ourselves, that is by way of being an unnatural existence. I want to stress this point. When the Greeks or Thomas Aquinas in classical philosophy, when we talk about politics and economics and ethics, if we ask which of these is primary, If we put it this way, which of these is wisdom in the practical order? The answer is going to be political science, not ethics in the sense of a concern with ourselves as individuals. Indeed, from this point of view, to consider ourselves simply as individuals is a kind of abstract consideration. It is sort of taking us out of our natural habitat and setting and asking, well now, how do we go about achieving personal integrity such that our appetites and emotions aren't governing our lives, uh, but they're coming under the sway of reason and rational uh, direction. So here we have again an indication of a very serious difference that can obtain between the classical mode of philosophy that Leo Thirteenth was advocating and later emphases in philosophy, in this case, in political philosophy. And the difference would be that between the autonomous individual, on the one hand, was society looked upon as some kind of deliberate creation on human beings' part. That is one view. And on the other, taking very seriously that Aristotelian slogan, if you will, Man is by nature a political animal. I'm checking here the uh, second book of the Nicomachean Ethics where Aristotle tells us that no one becomes good by philosophizing. And of course, he's talking about moral philosophizing. So the vexed question is this, what is the value of moral philosophy, which as you can see, I'm describing it as a kind of at leisure, generalized discussion of what one might do in such and such circumstances. We began, remember, with the situation where you as an individual confronting a decision that you must make, you go to an older and wiser person for advice as to what you ought to do. And I suggested that we could talk about moral philosophy as a kind of generalization of that and have, say, the common notes of that kind of wise advice codified and the like so that it would be available to anyone. So the question that did arise very early in the history of philosophy was what is the value of that knowledge? is knowledge virtue, is the way in which it can be expressed in Platonic terms. And indeed, the classical place for this discussion is the Protagoras of Plato, that dialogue named after one of the great, if that's the proper adjective, sophists, who comes to Athens offering to teach young men how to make it in Athens, in effect. And if they really want to succeed, he offers them the 50 drachma course. And what we have is Socrates in conversation with this fellow, and we expect the usual kind of jocular, ironic questions being asked by Socrates of this fellow, who is so confident that he has the key to success, and he can teach it to you. And all you have to do is sign up for the course, take it, and you'll be big in Athens. The odd thing about this dialogue is at the end of it, Socrates is made to play the role of one who accepts this assumption. The question that arises is this, someone objects, we may know what we ought to do and yet not do it. This is because the passions, let's say, are dragging reason around, so to speak. And this then is the way in which the problem is set up by the Protagoras towards the end of that dialogue. Is it possible that if we really know what we ought to do, that we could be deflected from acting on that knowledge from something other than knowledge, our emotion, our passions, and the like. Well, alas, for most of us, our experience seems to answer that one pretty quickly. Nothing seems to be more common than our acting contrary to our own best lights. It is one of the great tragedies and rueful facts of human existence that knowing what we ought to do is not tantamount to doing it between the knowledge of what we have to do and the doing of it often falls the shadow something happens what is that something and what socrates and the protagoras is saying the usual kind of claim just won't wash and the usual kind of claim is what that reason is dragged around by the emotions and what socrates says is that cannot be if you go, why and his answer is this within the makeup of the human being reason is dominant. Reason is the ruler. Reason is king, so to speak. So it can't very well be subservient to something other than itself. This then gives Socrates the task of arguing that knowledge is virtue. And how does he go about it? Well, he says, consider this. There is an art of perspective. That is, when we are judging the uh, relative size of objects, we learn to take into account the factor of their distance from us as the observer so that things that are closer to us look larger than things that are a great distance away And as you know, in painting in art in architecture, this art of perspective which gets codified in the Renaissance is one of the great forward moves which enables us to see all those Flemish paintings with the tiled floors and all those paintings where the columns tend to recede into the distance and so forth and create this illusion of depth in the painting. It's that art of perspective that Plato is already alluding to in the Protagoras because if someone would say, well, uh, how large is my hand? I say, well, it's about five times larger than the sun. And you say, what? What do you mean? And you say, well, I just hold up my hand and I blot out the sun and I can move it around. It's still blotted it out. I figure it's about five times larger. And then you mentioned the little factor of 90 million miles being distance between you and the sun and so forth. And say, so if you calculate it in that way, it's going to turn out the sun is a lot larger than the planet that you're standing on. So we learn how to do that, and we overcome mistakes that we might make, again, about judging near and distant objects in terms of their relative size by this art of perspective. Okay, so Plato says, let's then imagine that there's an art of perspective in practical moral decisions as well. And let's just simplify it and say, here it isn't relative size, but it's the relationship between pain and pleasure. And we want to make the correct judgments as to what is indeed pleasurable and what is indeed painful. And when we've made that judgment, of course, we're going to pursue the pleasurable and avoid the painful. And yet we seem to make mistakes about that. And how is that? Well, uh, it's something like the distance factor in perspective. It's the temporal factor. So that here you are, out for an evening, and your seventh beer, let's say, is put before you. And it might float across your still somewhat clear mind that a seventh beer is an unwise decision for you to make, and that your morning might be otherwise than you would like it to be if you go ahead and have that seventh beer. But morning is a long ways off, huh? And uh, so you push that thought, the the hangover and the uh, dyspepsia and all the rest of it, but would that it was dyspepsia if you had taken the right drink, and you push that all out of your mind and you look at this tasty beverage before us, the bouquet, the suds, and so forth, and you just can't resist it and you drink it. So what Plato is saying is this. If you would correct for temporal distance and see that this very fugitive pleasure of having yet one more beer, if you could put them in the same time frame, put that alongside waking up lively and healthy and clear headed in the morning, there's just no choice between the two. So, too, with respect to a present pain and a future pleasure. I mean, if you think of the pain of going to the dentist, a little root canal, let's say, without uh, anesthetic, a jolly thought. You have that on the one hand and then a future of vibrant dental health and you have the smile of the neighborhood and so forth. But here you are sitting in the dentist chair and he says, I think I'll do a root canal. My next appointment isn't coming in. Why don't we try a root canal? And you're thinking of this present pain and you say, come on, no, I don't want that. And he's saying, but think of the decades ahead when you'll be smiling people right out of their shoes and so forth, and that doesn't move you because you're overwhelmed by the prospect of the present pain, and all of that happy future just doesn't seem to move you. Again, what Plato says is what we need here is the art of moral perspective. And the art of moral perspective is essentially comparing present pains and future connected pleasures, or present pleasures and future connected pain, and getting them right. And, Plato says, once we have that knowledge, once we've seen clearly as to the relative weight of the pain and the pleasure, if we see them now, thanks to this art of perspective in the present, we're not going to obviously forego a relatively minor pain when it will benefit us for decades to come, nor are we going to pursue a fugitive and minor pleasure when it will lead to all kinds of complications and discomfort for us in the future. Well, so that's Plato's answer. Knowledge is virtue. There is a kind of knowledge, the art of moral perspective, which, if you have it, will give you a knowledge which you cannot act contrary to. It's the most startling claim in the dialogue. If you know, then you will act. If you really know, then you will act. Now, that suggests that there is a lot more to be gained from moral philosophy than perhaps you and I would expect from it. This is one of the topics in which Aristotle, in the sixth book of the Nicomachean Ethics, he takes up. And it's much discussed under the heading of weakness of will. What goes on when we say we know what we ought to do, and yet we act contrary to that knowledge? And we wonder, well, what's the remedy? I mean, there isn't any knowledge we didn't have, apparently, so that we can't say, consider this, consider that. Presumably we considered all those things, and yet we did this dumb thing, this wrong thing. What are we to make of that? And what Aristotle suggests, and it's very typical of him in treating this topic, is that when we talk about knowledge and say that the claim that we know something, there are several distinctions that we want to make. And one is to know kind of generally what we ought to do, and to know in particular what we ought to do, and the other is having the knowledge and thinking of it, so to speak, and having the knowledge and not thinking of it, the way a geometer might be golfing, and he's the greatest geometer, let's say, in northern Alabama, and he's not thinking about geometry. We could point to him and say, he knows geometry. So he knows it how, potentially, not actually. So with those distinctions, Aristotle is able to give some kind of affirmative response to Plato's claim. But one of the upshots of it is this, that the general knowledge that he distinguishes from the here and now knowledge of what we have to do, looks an awful lot like moral philosophy. And he's saying that kind of knowledge is not tantamount to acting in accord with that knowledge. And that's why he says, in book two of the Nicodemian Ethics, that the study of philosophy will not make you good. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.